studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks, just like always. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, TV shows, Renaissance art, pocket lint, fine wine, and nose picking. <sighs> I make it all up as I go along, people. What can I tell you? Anyway, so today I... I it's another week so it's another comic book but not just any comic book today I've actually got something very specific that I want to talk about or at least very sentimental to me this is today's comic is something that honestly it's meant a lot to me for a very long time now and I'll give you a little bit more of the details of that in just a second but for right now it needs to be said that when I was coming up as a comics fan, one of the inescapable realities of life was the epic mega storyline and comic book crossover event. You know, it was just fucking inescapable. Could not get away from this stuff. Or so I first thought. But sooner or later there came to be sort of alternatives that were available on the market and those were very much appreciated now for those of you who have absolutely positively no friggin idea what i'm talking about what i'm talking about is the those huge storylines from the 1990s that came to engulf a character almost to the point of completely subsuming the character right and the example that I think most people are probably familiar with is going to be Doomsday, Funeral for a Friend, and Reign of the Superman. Now, I like those stories, don't get me wrong. Tons of fun, and often I think very unfairly maligned. That having been said, though, guys, if all you wanted was to just read a fucking Superman story. Well, pretty much for a, something like a year or something like that, it was next door to impossible. You know, because every single Superman-related comic book that was coming out at the time, in some way or another, related to goings-on with Doomsday, Funeral for a Friend, and Reign of the Superman, right? That storyline was in a fucking escapable, right? What does one do? And honestly, I think the same thing can be said of the... In some ways, the Clone Saga for Spider-Man. That storyline, if all you wanted to do was just read some fucking Spider-Man comics without all of the Clone Saga bullshit that was going on at the time, guys, whether you like the Clone Saga or whether you hate it, it does need to be said that that kind of derailed Spider-Man for quite a while there. And if what you wanted to do was just read some fucking Spider-Man stories, pretty much you had 
back issues, or after a while, alternatives became available. You could read Spider-Man Adventures, which was based on the Spider-Man animated series going on at the time. Or you could read The Untold Tales of Spider-Man. And those things were like a godsend. You know, you could get away from all of this clone saga fucking stupidity and just read some fucking Spider-Man, you know? So that was welcome. And the same basic thing, just to kind of carry this to my actual subject today, the same basic thing was true in ways for Batman as well. There came a point when Nightfall was so ubiquitous as to be inescapable, right? And then, of course, there was Night Quest, and then there was Night's End. And all in all, that story, I think, took something like a year, or a little bit more than a year, to get fully resolved, you know? Now, again, I like those stories. Those are pretty good stories, I would say. Nightfall, Night Quest, Night's End, good stories. But sometimes, guys, all you really want to do is just read a fucking Batman story. And for a little while there, that was just not really possible to do. But then what I remembered was that, you know what? Whether this was what it was intended to be or not, Legends of the Dark Knight told stories that were just about Batman and... By and large, it pretty much avoided the mainstream monthly Batman continuity. So if what you wanted to do was get away from those types of stories, here you had an alternative. And I can't help but think that DC eventually got wise to that, and so what they decided to do was actually drag Legends of the Dark Knight into things that honestly, I don't give a shit what anybody says. DC wanted to drag Legends of the Dark Knight into a bunch of storylines that it had nothing to do with, right? And I speak here of Legends of the Dark Knight numbers 59 through 63, which were tie-ins to Night Quest and Night's End. And then God knows in the future, there would be tie-ins with things like No Man's Land and all that stuff. And guys, this isn't a slam, like I say, on Nightfall, Night Quest, Night's End, No Man's Land, or any of those other stories. But guys, that stuff is just so far out of scope for what Legends of the Dark Knight was intended to be that it's just fucking inappropriate to, to drag Legends of the Dark Knight into those stories. And then, later, Batman Adventures came along, and that being as that was tied in with Batman the Animated Series continuity, there was really no way that anybody could shit all over Batman the Animated uh, Series and the Batman Adventures just because they are so separate from the mainstream Batman continuity that it just it couldn't be done. So there was a kind of unreliable, at times, alternative to mainstream monthly Batman in the form of Legends of the Dark Knight. And then there was... A, the Batman Adventures, which was bulletproof in terms of reliability, you could depend on that to get away from all of this mega crossover storyline hoopla, you know? And that pretty much brings me to today's subject matter, which, if you hadn't guessed, is an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight, number 58, to be precise, a storyline entitled Storm. And I picked this up right when it came out, and, you know, guys, it needs to be understood that this was, it was like a breath of fresh air. And honestly, part of that is due to the fact that, you know, as storylines are, uh, are, are concerned, Legends of the Dark Knight, I don't know if it ever really, I don't know if it ever fulfilled all of the potential that it had. Because when you think about it, the shtick of Legends of the Dark Knight is that it tells stories about Batman, typically associated with his first year on the job, but not necessarily. I mean, it really could have been anything, but basically the, the shtick here is, you know, first of all, these are stories that are out of continuity, number one. And then number two, the other, th the other thing is, 
there was no single creative team for Legends of the Dark Knight. It could it, it, it could be anybody at any time. It changed from one storyline to the next. And so you would actually get a, uh, I would say, a pretty decent cross-section of talent and different points of view on Batman. Now, like I say, it's. I, I think the jury is definitely out as to whether or not Legends of the Dark Knight fulfilled all of the potential that it had. I think there's a strong argument that one can make that, you know what, maybe it didn't live up to its full potential. But no matter how you look at it, at least the occasional Legends of the Dark Knight story was actually very gripping, very engaging, very fun to read, you know? And as I say, this is an important thing to keep in mind, given that the night, especially Night Quest by this point, was, guys, it was, it, it really had kind of gotten a little bit, I would almost want to say a little bit overblown, a little bit full of itself. It hadn't quite reached its final destination yet. In fact, there's a strong case to be made that it had only just rounded a corner. And, you know, whatever, if you're not a fan of Night Quest, then definitely the worst was still to come with that story. So this is the environment into which I was thrust when I found... Legends of the Dark Knight number 58, which, as I say, is a storyline entitled Storm. And just to kind of give you an idea of what else was happening with with uh, Batman this month. This was the same month. I'm not going to really go into depth about these comics. I'm just going to let you know what else was out there at the time, just, just to kind of put all of this into perspective. Other Batman comics that came out this month, which the, the cover date is March of 1994, and the other Batman comics that have the March 1994 cover date are Batman number 505, Shadow of the Bat number 25, and uh, Detective Comics number 672. And I guess I can also, uh, I can throw Robin into this as well. Robin number four and so of the ongoing series. And so... That's pretty much right there in the armpit of Night Quest. And like I say, I'm not, I guess for editorial purposes, I'm not praising or condemning Night Quest. I'm just saying that if what you wanted was to get away from that story, which at the time that this comic came out, that was definitely what I wanted to do, irrespective of how I feel right now, this was definitely very welcome. And I guess ultimately the joke would be on me because the very next issue would get night, uh, Nightfall thrust into Night Quest. So, haha, fuckers. So, but in any case, that's what was going on. And so it was kind of a unique moment, I, I, I think for me as a, as a collector, this story was. And it was, I was still formulating, I guess, my basic sensibilities of Batman, who this character is, what he does, what he believes, so on and so forth. And this single story did a lot to shape all of that, but I'll come back to that in just a moment. For right now, this is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight number 58. Cover date is March of 1994. Actual on sale date, according to Mike'sAmazingWorld.com, is January 25th, 1994. Cover price is a buck seventy-five. Ah, those were the days. Writers are Andrew W. Duncan and Graham S. Brand. Artist is John Higgins. Letterer is—I don't know if this is Schubert or Schubert because I've actually heard it pronounced like this. This basic name, Schubert. I've heard this pronounced a bunch of different ways. So Schubert, if you feel like talking like an American, Schubert. If you want to use a little bit of a French pronunciation. And colorist is Laverne Kinder Kinzierski. Boy, that's a real fucking mouthful. Laverne Kinzierski. Huh. Anyway, the story synopsis goes a little something something as follows. A foreign VIP diplomat gets escorted to and then through Gotham City by FBI agents 
almost too numerous to count. One of which is of the leader of them, the guy who's actually managing all of this, is of course a complete total asshat. Batman spies the motorcade proceeding through downtown Gotham and then foils two snipers who are determined to assassinate the foreign diplomat. Eventually, the foreign diplomat is taken to a Gotham City hospital, the self-same hospital, in fact, that Thomas Wayne used to work at before he fulfilled his sole literary purpose and was shot to death in front of young Bruce Wayne's eyes. The terrorists eventually realize, though, that they've been schnookered in this whole deal, and so they eventually take hostages and basically put the entire hospital under siege. FBI agents are basically left holding their dicks, pissing in the wind, and basically figuring, well, to save face, fuck the hostages, we're going in after the terrorists, and that's just how it's going to be. Batman, of course, has philosophical problems with that, so he sneakily infiltrates the hospital, takes down the terrorists, and pretty much saves the day. As all of this stuff is going on, Gotham City is getting pelted by a storm, which is, I think, pretty clear symbolic language of the terrorists who are invading Gotham, because the storm ends right as the foreign diplomat leaves. The end. So, what did I think? Well, like I say, guys, this was... Sometimes in life, what you need is, eh, I guess, a little bit of a different perspective. Sometimes it's the small things that can really give you, eh, insight, I suppose, into a particular character. And one of the catchphrases that gets used a lot in this issue is, not in my city, never in my city. And that's basically Batman's sort of mantra all through this issue. Not in my city, never in my city. And so it really shouldn't be breaking news to anybody that Batman is, one might say, rather territorial about Gotham City. This is his city and nobody else's. But here's the thing. What this story basically goes almost to pains to illustrate is the fact that, yes, Batman on some level or another is motivated by altruism, by compassion, and other virtues. And it is, I, to some degree or another, even fairly universal in its scope. If there's something that Batman can do to help people overseas or for that matter, just in other parts of America, odds are he might be willing to do it depending on what it is. He, he'll at least keep an open mind. But, and here's the, here's the key, Gotham City is his top priority. It's not that Batman doesn't care about anything or anybody else. It's that his chief duty, as he sees it, is protecting Gotham City. And so... When a foreign diplomat from a war-torn country comes to Gotham City, hey, it's, it's not that Batman is unsympathetic or he doesn't care about that guy or his country, but at the end of the day, Batman's problem is Gotham City. Other people's problems are their problems. And for as implicit as all of this always was, for Batman as a character. It's one of those it's one of those things where I guess I my 13-year-old self the penny hadn't really dropped on that for me. You know, Batman might go overseas to I don't know, London or France or some fucking place like that if Gotham City's interests or his own interests can somehow be served in doing that. Then yeah, he'll do it. He'll, he'll even go as Batman, you know, or fucking whatever it is that he needs to do. Or an example that I think a lot of you are probably familiar with. There's this moment in, in The Dark Knight where Batman basically flies to uh, Hong Kong, kidnaps Lao, and drags his happy ass back to Gotham City. 
because it was understood that the Chinese government is not going to extradite one of their own back to Gotham City. That's just fucking never going to happen. And so Lau basically stood a very good chance of getting away with all of his crimes, and Batman wasn't going to stand for that. So he knew that Gotham City police couldn't do anything. The State Department couldn't do anything. The CIA probably couldn't do anything. The list of people who couldn't, who really couldn't do anything about Lau escaping to Hong Kong, the list is long but distinguished. Batman, however, could do something about it, so fucking that's what he did. He put on his brand new outfit that was given to him by Lucius Fox, broke into Lau's uh, tower, LSI Holdings, in Hong Kong, fucking broke in, beat the shit out of his bodyguards, kidnapped Lau, and then skyhooked his way out of there, flew back to Gotham City, and hand-delivered Lau to Commissioner Gordon. Now, I think... You know what? There's an argument there to be made that Batman might have actually caused an international incident. But you know what? That's outside the scope of what I want to talk about here. Point being, Batman was willing to go overseas in order to serve Gotham City's interests. No problem. But he didn't, he didn't go there just for sightseeing. He went there with a purpose. And in this case, the purpose was specifically getting Lau back to Gotham City. So, my point is that for, you know, that's probably the example most of you are familiar with, but my point is to say that Batman doesn't take meaningless actions. You know, if he's going to do something, it carries weight. And his primary motivation is, was, and will always be what's best for Gotham City. Does that make sense? And so as I, as I read all, when I read this comic as, as a, as a 13 year old who was just, he was still trying to get his head around just who Batman is. And, you know, guys, I mean, to be fair, I'd been collecting comics for, let me think, probably about four years by that point. And so, yeah, I owned a lot of Batman comics, but I hadn't really done a whole lot of analysis of who Batman is. I just liked Batman. You know, I liked his outfit. I liked the way he beats the shit out of people. But in terms of who this character is, what motivates him, what makes him tick, hadn't really done a whole lot of that. And this issue was one of the, this was probably the beginning of all of that changing, you know, to where I finally did start asking myself, well, what does set Batman apart from everybody else? You know, what makes him unique? And this is one of many things that kind of distinguishes Batman from all the others, you know? So, I... This is all, I guess, a long way of saying I really dig this. So, anyway, but to finally fucking get into this comic properly, the cover, guys, I'm going to be honest with you, this is a sort of blah cover. You know, it's, it's Batman basically swinging through the air, and what I think we're supposed to infer is that he reached... He's swinging through the air, and he's reaching out, grabbing onto a gargoyle that's sticking out of a building. Then he's going to spin off of that and keep, you know, just swooping through the air. And what we're, what we're seeing here is Batman in the middle of doing something kind of cool. But it's just the colors are all dark and subdued on this cover. And there's really nothing about the pose that Batman is in on this cover that really grabs you. I mean, one way to look at it is what I just said. Batman is basically swinging around off of a gargoyle. Another way of looking at it is that he's doing a handstand off of a gargoyle. And it's just overall, this is just... It's a kind of weird-looking cover. It's a kind of boring-looking cover. I mean, it's a painted cover, so it's really gorgeous to look at. You know, kind of proto-Alex... This wasn't... This is not an Alex Ross cover, you understand, but it's... It almost kind of reminds me of the style that Alex Ross would kind of make famous or infamous, as some people would probably have it. So, I don't know. This is this cover doesn't really do a whole lot to tell you just how awesome the story in this comic really is. So, read into that whatever you want. But one of the kind of neat things about this cover is the bat motif all over the all over the building that Batman is swinging around on here, uh, there, there are these little metal fuckers that are sticking out of the building 
all of which have bat shapes on the end of it. So it's just kind of neat looking. Like I say, there's no deep meaning to that. I just think it's kind of neat. He's not the only bat motifed symbol on this cover, I suppose. So anyway, but beginning on page one, what we're getting here is, I don't want to say it's sort of warmed over Frank Miller leftovers, because that's not really it. But the the tone and style a lot of a lot of the internal monologues, you really can't escape the year one vibe that's going on here. Which, considering the fact that a lot of Legends of the Dark Knight stories take place during the general year one era, maybe that's pretty good stylistic continuity. I don't know. It's all in how you look at it. But anyway, it's all very uh, kind of gritty, very pulpy, and I don't mean that in, a, in necessarily a negative kind of pejorative sense, but you can kind of... It's easy to kind of understand, I guess, the style that the writers, Andrew Donkin and Graham Brand, are going for here. The city looks how I feel. Rain hits the buildings hard, like it was something personal. Storm's not the only stranger in town. A VIP has come to see the glories of Gotham City, and so on and so on and so on. It just kind of goes, goes on from there. And it's all very, almost crime noirish in a way. And I I don't know as how, like how much of this I'd really call crime noir, because it's not really that exactly. But it it kind of has well some of the visuals actually are slightly like very slightly noirish. But I guess it's all in how you look at it. But in any case, this is a very Frank Millery type of internal monologue that we see not just from Batman in fact, but also somewhat from from Gordon. I'll come back to that in just a bit. But one of the visuals that, when you think about it, it makes no sense at all. But one of the visuals that people never seem to get really get tired of is Batman scurrying around on rooftops and crouching in shadows and sitting next to gargoyles and stuff like that. People never get sick of seeing that. But when you think about it, that's kind of illogical because, especially in the middle of a storm, dude, you talk about, a, you talk about taking your life in your own hands. Dude, one slip... And there won't be, there's not going to be enough left of you left, uh, left to bury, put it that way. But the other thing is, I mean, you know, when you're that fucking high up off the ground, what do you think you're going to see up there on street level that is going to be helpful to you? I don't know. I mean, like I say, it's one of those things that I don't think we're really supposed to like overly rationalize here, but it does kind of make you wonder, you know, uh, when you're that high off the ground, it's almost like it's sort of a handicap in a way, unless you've got microscopic vision and super hearing. Which Batman doesn't. So anyway, just something to think about there. But it actually works. In, uh, it's not just a stylistic or, or visual preference. There's actually a story purpose being fulfilled here, specifically that Batman happens across two snipers and ends up taking them both out. So, and that's pretty much what we see starting on page two and then going into pages uh, three and four. Uh, Batman takes one of, the, one of the snipers out before he can even get a shot off. The sniper's buddy sees what's going on and tries to shoot Batman, but guys, let's face it, that's really too little too late. There is a moment, though, on page three that just sort of makes you wonder. At the bottom of page three and the next to last panel, I guess specifically panel four, the sniper... I guess sniper number two accidentally shoots sniper number one, the very same sniper Batman just kicked the shit out of, right? Now, the question to ask is, was this an accident? I mean, was the sniper trying to get his bearings and his weapon pointed at Batman, and then he accidentally shot sniper number one in the process? Or did Batman hold sniper number one up and use his body as a human shield to protect himself from sniper number two. The art, just the way that it's drawn, it gives you the indication that Batman uses this sniper number one, who never seems to have a name, that's why I'm calling him sniper number one. The art gives you the impression that Batman's using this guy as a human shield on page three, panel four. So it just kind of makes you wonder, you know? 
So, I don't know. Now, my opinion about Batman is that it's not the... And guys, keep in mind, this is just interpretation, right? But my view of Batman is that here's a guy that wouldn't think twice about taking life as a punishment, you know? He would kill the Joker. I don't care what Denny O'Neill says to the contrary. I think Batman, not only would he kill the Joker, he'd sleep like a baby later that night, you know? But he won't necessarily do that for everybody. You understand? I think Batman would take life, but he would do it as as a punishment. You know, this isn't something that he would do as preemptive defense or even necessarily collateral damage. He would he would take life because you know what this guy on some fundamental level is too big a threat to be left alive. Guys like Bane, the Joker, arguably Two-Face, and others, they are so dangerous. They are such a threat to Gotham City that, yeah, I think Batman would snuff them out like a candle. And he wouldn't necessarily do that for a bank robber or a purse snatcher or a car thief or something like that. Wouldn't necessarily do it for those guys. Because we have a criminal justice system that's capable of prosecuting people like that. The punishment would fit the crime in most of those cases. But for a, like a sadistic, cold-blooded, psychopathic fucking maniac, I think Batman would take the law into his own hands. God knows he seems to, do, he, he seems to take the, the law into his own hands on just about every fucking thing else. So it just makes you wonder, is what I'm saying. So, to kind of tie it all back, is Batman using Sniper Number 1 as a human shield? Well, if you want him to use Sniper Number 1 as a human shield, then yes, that's what he's doing. If you don't want him to use Sniper Number 1 as a human shield, then no. Sniper Number 2 just was firing wildly and he accidentally hit his own man. It's all in how you look at it. Now, one of the things, though, that's kind of neat about all of this is the fact that Legends of the Dark Knight, guys, it needs to be said, this is, this is a comic that, by and large, was not approved by the Comics Code. And so, because of that, a lot of the same limitations and content that you might... Or, or the limitations that you might expect from the standard mainstream Batman, those things are not in effect here, right? So there's a moment on page three where Batman slams Sniper Number One's face into a concrete wall. And the next panel shows that, I mean, he's hurt pretty fucking bad. Looks like he's got a broken nose. Right at that moment, Sniper Number Two starts depending on how you look at it, firing wildly or else Batman starts using this guy as a human shield. But either way, sniper number two shoots sniper number one in the head and you can see a big splatter behind his, uh, behind his noggin where I assume the bullet came out. And then panel number four, like I say, depending on how you look at it, Batman's using this guy as a human shield and you can just see this huge eruption of of blood coming out of the guy's chest. After which, Batman, uh, on page four, swings over to sniper number two's side and just decks this guy full in the face on... Uh, this is on page, page four in panel three. And again, it, it's just the, the way that he's smashing this guy like right upside the face. And this is, by the way, somebody who drew this knows apparently how to fight and how to throw a punch because the way that Batman punches this guy in the face guys you'd fucking break somebody's jaw if you punched somebody 
in the jaw this way in real life, um, you might even go so far as to fracture their skull. I mean, you're going to fuck this guy up pretty bad. And the reason I'm kind of going to the nines in terms of describing this is to say that this is content that I don't necessarily think that we'd see in a, a, a Comics Code approved book circa 1994. Just don't see it. I don't see that happening. So, and there's going to be plenty more of this in the pages still to come. But for right now, basically we've got uh, our action quota for right now pretty much satisfied. And so from here, we can get into some more sort of talky-talky expository type scenes. And basically what we see here is Commissioner... Well, I can't say Commissioner Gordon. We see Captain, uh, Captain Gordon talking to the FBI asshole in charge. And this was a sort of a kind of a trope of a lot of action movies, even in 1994. Probably one of the more famous examples of the asshole FBI guy who's intruding on police matters, probably that most people are going to be familiar with, is going to be in uh, the movie Die Hard, where the, the principal from... Actually, no, he wasn't the principal from The Breakfast Club. He was one of the cops. The principal from The Breakfast Club is actually one of the cops in Die Hard. I forget. The the actual FBI agent, um, Agent Johnson, let me think. I, I'm All of a sudden, I'm blanking on what else this guy has been in. It obviously wasn't Breakfast Club, but whatever. That's probably the... That's probably the example that most people are familiar with. You know, that that asshole FBI guy that's just a... Let's, guys, let's just call it, This guy's just kind of a fuck widget. And that's the same type that we're dealing with here. You know, this guy is just a blowhard asshole. And he basically is, is just being... Guys, he's just being kind of a dick to Gordon here. And Gordon's really only doing this because... Fuck it, he needs the overtime, you know? Uh, he even goes so, so far as to say, if he, meaning... Oh, golly, I, I kept saying FBI. Sorry, I meant to say CIA. Hmm. Whoops. <laughs> Sorry about that. But anyway, he even goes... Corden goes on to say, if he treated me like dirt, it'd be a promotion. You know, I mean, that's... And that's very much the, the tone that this dialogue is going for, you know? Uh... Uh, he basically chews Gordon a new asshole. Vigilante interference? Call that doing your job, Captain? And he's just being a dick. You know, I mean, you know, asshole, you knew you were coming to Gotham City, okay? Everybody knows that this is where the Batman hangs out. You're the one that wanted to come here, so don't bitch and complain about the local scenery, you know? It's like going to New Jersey and complaining about all the toxic waste dumps that are there. I mean... You gotta expect... Yeah, whatever. Anyway, I'm moving on. Actually, you know what? No, I'm not moving on. Um, before I move on, this is on page six. What we're basically seeing is an elevated train. Now, I've kind of changed my views on this now, but there was a time when I sort of viewed Gotham City as kind of an alternative to Chicago. You know, it was basically a surrogate for Chicago. And oddly enough, you know what, it's really the the fact that we're talking about, you know, the Midwest in general made me think that, you know what, maybe what Chicago needs to be is actually a surrogate for Metropolis. And Gotham City can be kind of a dump located in, as it happens, New Jersey. But I, I, I see this elevated train that Batman and this hooker chick are are standing beside. And it kind of made me think, am I the only one, at least at, back in the old days, back in 1994, who kind of viewed Gotham City as a sort of a Chicago surrogate? It just kind of made me wonder about that, you know? Because, honestly, how many elevated trains are there in America, you know? And I'm not being completely rhetorical there. I honestly don't know. But let's face it, that's one of the more famous aspects of Chicago, right? So anyway, from there, we get some more talky-talky exp uh, exposition. And 
it's basically this VIP diplomat from an unnamed, unspecified foreign country getting a tour, of all things, of a fucking hospital. And that, again, kind of makes you wonder, is this supposed to be a surrogate for Cook County Hospital, like in Chicago? It just kind of makes you wonder. So, again, the Chicago connections. So, or potential connections. So, from there, basically what we see is shit is starting to go a little bit south here, starting on page 9, where basically Batman begins an an interrogation that's going to have some pretty unexpected out uh some pretty unexpected consequences to it but before we get into that again guys at the bottom of page nine this is not a code approved book all right so batman smashes um this he smashes this guy who's attacking his uh his source barrett he smashes this guy in the fucking face right And again, you can see that this guy's face is covered with blood. It's safe to assume he's got a broken nose and who the hell knows what else. And, I mean, Batman's hurt this guy pretty fucking bad. I mean, this is is bad, you know? And again, guys, not a code-approved book. You know, if Batman's got to break a couple heads in order to to achieve his ends, guess what he's going to do, you know? So, anyway. It comes out, this is on page 10, it comes out that... Basically, everything that's going on here with the terrorists and the VIPs from, I'm gathering, Eastern European country unspecified. Number one, there's a huge double cross going on here. Number two, Batman's source, Barrett, plays a pretty major role in it. Number three, none of this is lost on the CIA. They know damn good and well what's happening here. So they know about the fact that... that the terrorists are going to make their move against the diplomats and and they're going to do it inside the hospital. And guys, when you think about it, that's pretty fucking dark, you know? I mean, if the CIA knew for a fact that this was going to happen and then let it happen, oh, I shudder to think. And then, of course, on page 11, it comes out that, yeah, the CIA really was in on this, or at least they were in on it in as much as they knew it was going to happen because they they substituted in a a phony baloney replacement uh, in place of the actual VIP diplomat that that these terrorists had their eye on in the first place. The The terrorist leader realizes that right away and realizes, I'm fucked. We've now got a real problem here. This whole thing turns into a full-blown hostage situation, and the CIA, on page 12, actually lay down fire to keep the Batman away from the scene of all of this. And it's just strange to think, you know, would something like this happen in the real world? Well, I mean, guys, I kind of happen to think that there are people out there that are, I guess, so careerist, so ambitious that, yeah, they may actually risk innocent people's lives in this way, you know? And so I'm not trying to sound, you know, jaded or cynical or anything like that. I don't want to... I guess I don't want to give that impression, but, yeah, I mean, whether it's either through corruption or else from just complete fucking incompetence, yeah, you know, I could kind of see something like this happening, you know? Maybe not this exactly, but, you know, something along these lines. And again, guys, page 14, right? This is not a code-approved comic book. The terrorist leader whips out his Uzi, is what it looks like, and basically blasts this guy's head right off his shoulders. And this is not something you'd see in a mainstream book, you know? This is some heavy shit. And the violence of this book, it's never quite so nasty as to be gratuitous, But, you know, it does need to be said, this is a very ugly and very brutal world that Batman's been thrust into here. And these guys, they don't play nice, you know? They don't play nice at all. So, anyway, starting on page 16, this is actually kind of gross, because what we see is Batman skulking around through a sewer so that he can get entrance into the hospital that way. All kinds of wretched foulness that I dare not even imagine. It looks like there's a giant turd floating around in the water there. See all these nasty, ugly, 
fucking disease-ridden rats running around. It's just fucking disgusting. You know? I do find it interesting, though, that all, these sewers are always incredibly well-lit, you know? And they're always incredibly huge, too. Very cavernous, I find. You know, these it's almost like it's an underwater city, the way that these things tend to be drawn. I've never been inside of a sewer, but I would imagine it tends to be pretty dark and pretty cramped. Every bit is gross, you understand. The nastiness and the filth and the rats and whatnot, but it's just a lot smaller and a lot darker. <laughs> it's disgusting to even think about. Yuck. Anyway, but from there, page 17. Guys, say it with me and take a drink. Not a code-approved book. Batman punches these guys in the face when they find him hiding in the hospital. He knocks a couple of teeth out. He breaks no uh, their noses. He breaks maybe even other bones as well. And, I mean, he really fucks these guys up. You know, uh, maybe uh, breaks jaws, fractures skulls. I mean, he fucks these guys up pretty bad. Like, hurts them bad. And... This is this is a version of... It's not that... My personal view of Batman is that... There are times when he gives somebody the amount of physical punishment that he thinks they deserve, you know? He may just slap somebody around without really hurting them all that bad, without really drawing a whole lot of blood, breaking skin, you know, breaking bones, doing things like that. I could picture instances where Batman does that. But as much as anything, what Batman views as his mandate is administering justice. And to me, it seems so logical as to be inescapable that Batman views the the physical violence that he does as part and parcel of the justice that he doles out. Guys, this is punishment, all right? This isn't meant to tickle. You know, Batman is as much as anything punishing these people for what they've done, you know? So on the one hand, you're thinking, oh my God, this guy definitely got his nose broke, like... On page 17, the guy on the far left side of the panel definitely got his nose broke. There's no question about that. The guy more, uh, situ- the blonde dude looking, the blonde looking dude situated more towards the center of the panel, he definitely got teeth knocked out. There's no question about that. And one of them got punched in the head so hard. I, guys, I'm no pathologist, but I kind of have to wonder did Batman put this guy's eye out? You know, because you can punch somebody in the head so fucking hard that you can actually damage the optic nerve to their eyeball. And you can actually destroy somebody's vision in one of their eyes if you punch them in the face hard enough. It's possible to do. And again, whoever drew this, um, or rather, whoever conceptualized this panel, whether it was uh, Andrew Donkin or Graham Brand, the writers, or if it was John Higgins, the artist, Whoever came up with the idea of this panel on page 17, this is panel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, page 5, where Batman, with his right hand, smashes the blonde terrorist guy, like right across the head. Guys, that's a real punch. If you were to punch somebody that way in real life, you're going to inflict a lot of damage to them. Now, the reason I keep mentioning that is because so often what you see in these comics are these punches, these kind of sissy Mary punches, that they are drawn by somebody who has never thrown a punch in his life. You know, but guys, I, mostly when I was a kid, but I was in a fair amount of fights when I was a kid, right? I know how to throw a punch. I know how to punch somebody in the face in a way that won't break any of your knuckles. And I also know that if you punch somebody in the face in a certain way, guys, your knuckles are not as tough as you might think. You can break your knuckles like you just wouldn't believe, right? And a lot of times the punches and shit that you see in comics, if you were to do that in real life, you would break your fucking hand if you were to do that for real, right? Other times, though, what you see are 
what you see is um, an artist who maybe he's been in a lot of fights himself, or maybe he just understands anatomy. I don't know. But guys like Paul Gulacy, and definitely in this comic, John Higgins, they know that if you punch somebody in the face the right way, you'll fuck them up. And they tend to get it right most of the time, you know? I've very rarely seen Paul Gulacy uh, get these strikes to the face. I've very rarely seen him get those wrong. And so far, uh, John Higgins in this in this issue, uh, he's batting a thousand because he's he's every single strike to the face that you see in this issue that John Higgins draws is perfect. If you do this in real life, you will fuck somebody up, you know. Whereas if you do if you punch somebody in the face the the way that you see in a lot of other comics, you will break your hand, you know. So just keep that in mind, you know, both, you know, should you ever need to defend yourself, but also, you know, the damage that you can do to somebody else, you know, guys, this stuff, it's not a game. It's not a toy. You can really, you can really hurt somebody. So just keep that in mind. And the person you could hurt if you ever have to defend yourself is yourself. So if it comes to that, make sure you know what you're doing. Anyway, so at the bottom of page 17, what we see is Batman's leftovers after he's beaten the snot out of these two guys. And again, guys, this is not a code. This is not a code approved comic. If this was a code approved comic, you know, there might be a little bit of spit coming out of these guys' mouths, but you wouldn't really see all that much blood, you know, but here you, you not only see a lot, uh, a lot of blood whenever Batman punches them in the mouth, but you see teeth flying out. And then, in the very last uh, panel, you know, these guy, this, this guy's face and mouth and nose is just covered in blood where Batman just beat the shit out of him, you know. And, I mean, this guy got punched so hard, I wouldn't be surprised if he's got a little bit of a speech impediment now. Uh, yeah, you can hit somebody that hard, too. So, anyway. Moving right along, getting into page 18... Uh, basically, there's this moment where uh, Bruce looks into one of the operating rooms. And he just has a flashback to his childhood where he looked into the same operating room. And he saw, he, he saw Thomas Wayne standing there. And Thomas basically, he's nice about it. He says, you really shouldn't be in here, Bruce. But since you are... Go tell Mr. Finch that his wife and new daughter are doing fine and don't run. And Batman, still in, I guess, his reverie, he says, yes, sir, out loud. And I don't, I mean, this is one of those moments, one of the few moments actually in this issue that it just, it seems like a little bit of a false note to me here. I mean, I... My personal view is that, you know, Batman would be on top of things well enough that I just, first off, I can't picture him ever just losing his, his concentration to such a degree that he actually does sort of relive a moment like this from his childhood. But I certainly can't see him reliving a moment like this from his childhood in the middle of a fucking hostage situation like this. I just can't picture that happening, you know? So, I don't know. Anyway... Moving into page 19, the hostage that this, uh, this terrorist leader has taken instinctively hits the deck to give Batman room to manipulate. And so Batman flies in there, kicks the guy in the head, and then just backfists this guy right across the face. And again, guys, this is a real strike. If you, if you smash somebody in the head the same way that Batman does on page 19, panel 4, you really do that to somebody... Again, you're looking at knocking out teeth, breaking jaws, breaking noses. I mean, who the hell knows? But you're, I mean, you're going to fuck that guy up real bad if you do that in real life. And again, it just speaks to the darkness and the grit that this story has that Batman's not holding back. You know, this is not a comic in general that was known for censoring itself. But, you know, Batman really kicks the shit out of a lot of people in this comic. It's not... Uh, a, these are not cartoon fights that Batman's having here. I mean, he's hurting people 
really fucking bad in these comics, you know, like so bad as they may need physical therapy as part of their recovery process. I mean, it could, it, it, it could be that bad. Now, part of me kind of wonders that John Higgins might have just researched what effective combat techniques actually look like because one of the doctors, the, the hostage that Batman just rescued at the very bottom of page 19, he says, you, you did that with almost a surgical precision. And yeah, that's pretty easy to believe. I mean, you know, Batman is the son of a surgeon and he was trained by the greatest martial arts masters in the world. It stands to reason that, yeah, Batman's going to be that good. But the thing is, somebody involved with this story obviously knows just what the fuck they're doing here. Because, you know, the stuff that, at least, not so much the sissy Mary kicks. I just, I don't really like kicks all that much. But the the, the strikes that Batman makes with his fists. Uh, his fists and his hands in this comic. Somebody knows what they're doing here because these are real strikes. And so it just makes me think that this is not a throwaway line. You know, when the doctor says, you did that with almost a surgical precision. I think somebody took that to heart. And that's why the the strikes and martial arts moves that Batman does in this issue are so perfect. Because, guys, these are some of the best martial arts moves I've ever seen in a comic book. None of that flashy Hollywood shit. This is just brutal, you know? You're breaking bones with every punch you throw in these comics if you do it in real life. So, just safety warning, guys. You know, just something to be aware of there. Should you ever need to defend yourself. Anyway, so from there we start working into a little bit of the climax and then the sort of falling action of the story. The CIA knows that basically shit has gone down inside of the hospital. And just to save face, if nothing else, what they're going to have to do is rush the place and try to take control of the situation. Not because the situation's out of control, but because of the fact that they're in danger now of being shown up by the bat being showed up by the batman you know shown up showed up whatever the whatever the correct past tense to use there is and so that's basically what we're seeing uh batman basically distracts some of the uh, terrorists by throwing his cape through a window then he crashes in from behind beats the shit out of some people takes them down that way and even one of the uh the doctors one of the hostages ends up getting involved in the act. He sticks one of the terrorists with something or other, but it's apparently enough to put the guy down. So the terrorist, uh, uh, the terrorist that Batman is, is in the process of taking apart. He first on page 21 throws the terrorist leader across the room. This guy never gets a fucking name, but he throws the terrorist leader across the room. One of the other terrorists, uh, Batman first grabs him by the wrist and then smashes him across the shoulder. And again, guys, this is a real martial arts move. You know, you will fuck somebody's shoulder up like it, you'll break it like a twig. You know, at the very least, what you're doing is dislocating the guy's shoulder. No question about that. Then Batman pitch, uh, pitches the guy forward face first onto the hard linoleum floor. And you can just imagine this, this guy's teeth going all over the place. His nose is just, oh my God. This guy's... Batman fucked this guy up. So, and then, finally, uh, we get a little bit of a falling action. Batman takes out the last uh, uh, two terrorists. One with a backhanded fist. Uh, and then the other, he just punches him again and again and again. And, and t you can just picture this guy's head bouncing off the floor like a fucking basketball. And Batman just... Apparently, he didn't do all the, as good a job with that as he needed to, though, because the terrorist ends up shooting one of the CIA guys in the back, so Batman kicks him in the head. And again, I mean, you know, the, just when it comes to martial arts stuff in general, I'm not real big on kicks and stuff like that just because of the fact that, like, what are you kicking? And with what part of your foot are you kicking? It just it looks weird. It looks stupid. 
I don't know, but whatever. You know, there's so many other badass martial arts moves in this book that it almost seems kind of stupid to criticize any of it. So, and then after that, we get to the last page where the CIA guy is swarmed by doctors and he gets instant medical care. And after that, Gordon and Batman wander outside, stand on what looks to be either a balcony or a rooftop, staring up at the full moon as the storm leaves uh, Gotham City. And Batman even says, Jim and I watch in silence as the storm takes its leave of Gotham. It won't be back. It knows it wouldn't be welcome. Not in our city. And that is the end of the story. And guys, this is just fucking great. First off, like I say, I mean, there's the action and the fights and stuff. I've gone on record many, many, many times saying that when you come right down to it, ultimately what I want from my Batman movies or my Batman cartoons or my Batman comics or just whatever is Batman beating the crap out of people. That's what I want. Like, when I was... When I was, like, 12, 13, 14 years old, around there, you could have made... And maybe even now, I mean, who knows, but... What you could have done is made a Batman movie where he does nothing but just... From beginning to end. No plot, no real dialogue, nothing like that. It's nothing but Batman beating the shit out of people, you know? And we're talking about... Uh, uh, drug dealers, mafia, yakuza, supervillains, who cares? You know, it's all the same. Batman beating the piss out of people, you know? And nothing but that for a good two hours. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. No plot, no dialogue, no narrative or anything like that. Nothing but Batman beating the shit out of people. If you'd done a movie like that, and not, that consists of just fights and nothing else, I would have told you I got my money's worth, you know? And that, I don't know, it's, it's like the guy gene, I guess, but that itch definitely gets scratched pretty well in, in this comic. This is, I mean, first off, it's just, it's a good story, all right? I'm not trying to take anything away from that. It gives you an idea of just what exactly it is that drives Batman, which specifically is Gotham City. His first priority. Not necessarily his only priority, but definitely his top priority. And even if the threat to Gotham City is completely foreign, which is to say from a different country, even if there are CIA agents on the scene who theoretically could can do just as good a job at saving the day as Batman, it doesn't matter. This is happening in his city. That gives him jurisdiction over it, in his mind. And that was so informative to the way that I've come to view Batman. It may have been Captain Obvious for a lot of you guys, but maybe sometimes in life you just you need to be told this stuff, you know? And so, here we are. So, like I say, it's a fun story, I really dig it, and I highly recommend it. And plus, getting your hands on it can't really be that challenging. I mean, I don't think this story was ever reprinted anywhere, but at the same time, it's not like this is a rare comic book or anything. I mean, millions of these things would have been printed. You know, my guess is that you can you can get a copy for... I, like at the most, like what, like two or three bucks? This may even be quarter bin fo uh, fodder. So if anyone wants to make a suggestion to Professor Allen here, this may even be quarter bin fodder at this point. And guys, this is this is worth it. All right, this is a this is not the greatest Batman story that's ever been written. You know, you're probably not going to see this in the greatest Batman stories ever told, Volume Three. On the one hand, but on the other hand, guys, this is. In its own way, this is a kind of a fun story, but guys, this is a dark and gritty story, and it's got lots of fights, and, you know, lots of sneaking around, deep dark shadows, and all that fun stuff. It's just a, this is a real blast of an issue, and I highly recommend it. And that, I think, is pretty much it for 
Legends of the Dark Knight, number 58. And as it happens, that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.